Hey everyone, welcome back to Nightmare Now. That's right, welcome back because we are out here doing a part two. Is this part two or part two and a half? Either way, check out last week's episode and the week before that because we are picking up where we left off in that particular story. How rude of me. My name is Eric Byrne and I'm your host today. So we're going to just jump right into it. I don't think we need to talk about more of it because hopefully you're listening as a continuation from last week. As a quick recap though, if you decide to jump into part two like a psycho, the Hills, Barney and Betty were a middle-aged married couple living in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in the early 60s. Barney was a 39-year-old black postal worker who would commute to Boston every day for work and this kind of took a toll on him in addition to the other stuff that he was going through from his UFO experience and the fact that he had another family in Philly. Uh, Betty was at the time of the incident a 42-year-old white social worker living and working right here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The third of the hills was Delcy, a uh, small black dachshund that accompanied them on their adventures. So the pair took Delcy and drove up to Niagara Falls and Montreal for a lovely weekend getaway. The trip was mostly without incident until the drive home. I talked about the trip a little bit last week, but really nothing exciting. It's just a couple's trip to Montreal. Uh, They were driving down Route 3 and Interstate 93 to get from Canada to Portsmouth, mostly a straight shot south through the state until the last 45 minutes to an hour where you hit Concord and swing in east and head towards Portsmouth. But after reaching Colebrook, New Hampshire, they saw a mysterious object in the sky and kind of dismissed it as a plane or a satellite. I'm going to breeze through this a little bit because it's, like I said, it's all a recap. If you're confused, check out last week's episode and subscribe so you can check out on all of it and all the other cool stuff we cover. Eventually, the object comes closer and they get out to look at it. Barney goes nuts because there's figures in the craft and he, he gives some interesting descriptions of these (laughs) figures at first he's like it's some kind of nazi and then at another point he's like they look like irishmen so they're irish nazis and but they got slanted eyes like a chinese (laughs) like i said 1960s didn't necessarily have the best of uh let's say politically correct sensibilities when saying a chinese um but barney obviously experienced his fair share of being called some unsavory things being a black guy in the 1960s as well. So we'll give him a pass on that one. And what's interesting is this image of the people or later entities that he sees in the craft kind of change the further into hypnosis that he goes. And that's kind of most of what we'll be getting into in this episode is what actually happened in that missing time. So after they see this, they get back in the car and try and book it home with the UFO flying saucer looking craft following them, sometimes disappearing, sometimes getting very close. You know, it's going in and out between the trees. Sometimes it's directly above them. I talked about it all last week. When they reach the Indian Head Resort right next to Loon Mountain, the craft gets very close and they hear this repeated beeping noise. And I got some feedback on the beeping noise that it was unpleasant in headphones. So I'm sorry for that. So I'm not going to repeat it here. I just did that for immersion. Um, But they hear that beeping noise and then they kind of feel sleepy. They almost go into a trance state. And as far as they know, they hear the beeping 
they don't really remember anything after that. And then the beeping starts up again. And suddenly they're 45 miles down the road. It's two and a half hours later. And they both kind of abruptly wake up mid-driving to this beeping noise. And they're like, well, uh, I guess we better get home. I definitely didn't fall asleep at the wheel. And they have no memory of that time in between. They have some kind of inklings. Like, like I talked about last week, they have the sort of impression that there was some kind of roadblock in a full moon in the road. They remember seeing everything before the beeping. So they remember seeing the craft in the sky. They're not really sure what it was. But there's this whole chunk of time that is just gone for them. So a little shaken after the drive home, they go to bed. They sleep for the afternoon because they were originally planning on getting home at like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And they didn't get home until five in the morning, which was not what they planned on. So they obviously slept until the afternoon like anyone would. And then they found some weird stuff with their belongings. Uh, Barney's shoes were scuffed up on the top as if he had been kind of dragged along by his shoulders and his feet were dragging behind him. Of course, you could get some scuffing on the shoes when he got out to look at the UFO with the binoculars and stuff. But it wouldn't be scrapes along the top of his shoes. Nobody walks like they're doing like a inverted moonwalk where you're dragging the tops of your feet along as you go. Betty's dress was ripped in places and she had a bad feeling about it. She took the when she got home she took the dress off. She threw it in a trash bag and she threw it in the corner of her closet and Basically never took it out again until she donated it to UNH. And my uh, my family actually just went over to UNH to take a college tour, I believe. So I might have some actual pictures of the dress. I didn't have time to get over there myself. But we might have some actual pictures of, the, of Betty's dress from the incident, um, which would be kind of cool. So stay tuned for those. If not, I will add them at a later date when I eventually get the time to go over there. There was the luggage where... Both Betty and Barney kind of had an inkling that they shouldn't bring the luggage into their bedroom. Then this thought just kind of pops into their head with no real explanation for it, where they're like, there might be radiation on it, so we'll just leave it in the mudroom. And it's kind of a weird thing to come up with, even if you did see a UFO, that you would just have this sort of intrusive thought that maybe we shouldn't have this luggage with us. And they eventually brought it in, but for the first night after they got back, they left the luggage in the mudroom. There's the weird rings on the car. I covered that last week where there were these concentric circles on the trunk of the car, which was also where the fertilizer was, which was another like weird aspect where the aliens might have been interested in the nitrogen, the nitrogen-heavy soil that's in fertilizer that comes up in later cases sometimes but there were these perfectly circular chromed out spots on the back of their i think it was like a 61 chevelle or something i don't remember exactly what the car was (laughs) i talked about it last week but these these rings on the car would make a compass spin around wildly um and then they eventually went away but it's it's you know there's a couple of measurable pieces of physical evidence to this case is is basically what I'm getting at with this recap. So after a few days and weeks and months of trying to figure out what happened to them, 
Because think about how scary that is. You're, you and your wife are driving and you have 45 miles of high, dangerous mountain highway driving that you have no recollection of. Like, sure, okay, maybe you're drowsy driving or something, but to have zero recollection of it besides fleeting impressions of a roadblock or, you know, a light in the sky or something, it's it's troubling. People don't like the idea that they are not in control and not understanding of the reality that they're presented with. Eventually, they reported the sighting to NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, and the Air Force. And there's an Air Force base in Portsmouth. Well, there was. Now it's a civilian airport, I think it's a trade port, since I think 1991 or 2. Um, but that's basically where we left off last week. They met up with uh, Major Sweat. Yes, that's his name, who was a former Air Force investigator who was reading poetry at their church and was also an amateur hypnotist, hypnotist, which it seems really convenient. There's a lot of, I guess, coincidence in this case. And that's one of them that they meet just at church when they're talking about their experience with their congregation. I guess it's not really their congregation if they're not preachers, but the people that they go to church with they meet a guy who is interested in UFOs and also a hypnotist, which ends up playing just probably the biggest part in their entire lives. It's just one of those weird fate meetings. Anyway, Major Sweat (laughs) doesn't really feel comfortable hypnotizing them. It's kind of outside his area of expertise. He kind of can maybe encourage people to think about quitting smoking but for something like this where there's real trauma and real kind of amnesiac memories i don't know if amnesiac is the term and i haven't had the chance to ask sarah about it so i'm just gonna go with that term and if that is wrong then let me know at nightmare now at gmail.com or at nightmare now.com i think there's a comment section there either way engage with the with the show <laughs> But anyway, he recommends them to a Dr. Benjamin Simon, a psychiatrist operating out of Boston who is comfortable with using hypnotherapy. And that's pretty much where we left off while they were on their way to their first session with Dr. Simon. So a brief aside, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about this last, that I wanted to talk about this this week on the show last week. But there, after reading through the whole book and kind of going through it, there really isn't that much to discuss as I thought there was. But um, it doesn't really add to the story so much narrative-wise as credibility-wise. They reported their stories to the ufologist who documented the facts of the case in the NICAP database, which would eventually match up with thousands of other reports. So like I said, It's a credibility thing. It doesn't really add to the story itself. A lot of the stuff that happened to Betty and Barney on their quote-unquote interrupted journey happened to other abductees and experiencers over the next 60 years. Like, this shit is still going on today, and there's still a lot of parallels in the cases 
that occur with high frequency today. The Air Force was kind of cagey about their response, but they did actually admit that there was no training flight or military aircraft out that night. Not that they have to, I imagine, but it's, it's another tick in the credibility column. Like if they are doing some kind of experimental flight, they're probably not going to tell people, but it, the fact that they say they went, they got back to them and told them that there wasn't anything going on that night kind of lends a little bit of credence there. But for brevity's sake, for narrative's sake, I don't really think it's necessary to, necessary to yank too much harder on that particular plot thread. Because it really doesn't go much further than that unless we really expand the scope of the episode out to the entire UFO abduction phenomena and the Air Force's involvement in it rather than just this particular case. And the episode's already on its second and a half episode, so I don't think we need to go into Project Blue Book and, you know, all the military investigations and Roswell and all that stuff, at least not right now. So back to the story, they're headed to Benjamin Simon's office. They arrive in Boston a little bit early to be punctual, and they have time to grab a bagel on their way in. Fucking Duncan, that's right, bud. So then they make it in and are pretty are on time for their consultation. Simon proceeds to get the same story as I just told, plus the fact that Barney has some anxiety about being a shitty dad because his kids from a previous marriage are out in Pennsylvania and aren't being dadded. And I couldn't really find any more information on his kids or you know, that side of Barney Hill's legacy. And I would imagine that they just kind of distanced themselves from the whole thing. So I'm not going to pry too much there. It would be interesting to see if any of his kids had any sort of experiences as well, because that's another thing you see a lot of times in the sort of grand abduction phenomena, where there's two huge factors in that. There's bloodline factor where if your father is abducted by aliens, that makes you, I can't put a percentage percentage on it, but that makes you way, way, way more likely to experience things yourself. And the skeptical argument for that is obviously, you know, you're being conditioned by your parents to believe in this shit. But then there's the, I don't know, believer argument that if they're looking for genetic material, which they are in a lot of cases, it seems, of course they're going to go with the progeny of their prior experiments and gets into all this X-Files metaplot stuff that we don't need to go into. It would just be interesting to see if there was anything to that in this particular case. Uh, Barney also has these stress ulcers, likely from the parental stress, the stress from Betty being like, Barney, are you sure you don't want to look into this UFO thing all the time? And just what happened that is being repressed either by his memory, either by his own trauma response or by screen memories inserted by these entities. Betty mentions her recurring dreams slash nightmares, but they don't really get much attention until later because it's decided that um, Barney will be going first on all these hypnotism sections. So they they spend the next few weeks going to visit Dr. Simon, going into a light hypnotic induction. Sort of the short version is that 
Betty and Barney have to get comfortable with the idea of hypnosis and practice going under several times, reinforcing keywords. So in popular media, that's like they show up and he hits them with, uh, you're getting very sleepy. You'll fall asleep when I say Bigfoot. Bigfoot. When you wake up, you'll have no memory of this. You'll wake when I say chicken patty. Chicken patty. And it's like that kind of bullshit where they, they come up with some random word where... This is your cue to go into the hypnotic trance state, and this is your cue to come out of it, and we're going to condition you to be able to do that without, you know, spending an hour just getting you there. So once you go through a couple of these sort of um, induction trainings, you'll be able to go slip into a hypnotic trance very easily. You'll be able to get into that state instead of an hour of billable psychiatrist time being like, you're getting very sleepy over and over again. You actually get to the meat of the issue. So it probably saves you money in the long run too. So let's dig into hypnosis a little bit. I'm not going to go into the whole history of it because I don't know it, honestly. But hypnotherapy is can be effective with patients with things locked away, possibly by trauma, with things locked away, meaning memories, possibly by trauma, and they may be able to access those memories through hypnosis. It kind of gets into the hologram theory where someone can tell you the names and the eye color of everyone at their fifth birthday party. I probably can't tell you the eye color of all my best friends, let alone people that attended my fifth birthday, but that fucking B-roll eyeball footage is still an archive in your brain, which is incredible. That's one of the coolest things about hypnosis is there's these memories, like... I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but they talk about how your brain takes in, you know, a terabyte of information every couple of seconds. And the human brain can store an astronomical amount of data, but it's like you're trying to remember what fucking day of the week it is. You can't remember that. But in the trance state, a lot of those random access memories are available to you where just minor details are shown with crystal clarity. It's there. It's all in your brain, but it's hard to access on command unless you're not focusing on anything else like you are in a trance state. So naturally, this process lends itself to recall memories otherwise sealed off through trauma or even some inserted mental block or screen memory. And that's something we might get into this time, maybe another time. But the basic idea of a screen memory is that with abductees, they'll oftentimes have sort of unexplainable memories. Like you see this in cases where there'll be a barn owl sitting at the window at like 3 a.m. when you wake up and you be like, huh, that's weird. Why is that owl at my window? And then you fall back to sleep and don't really think about it. And maybe if you see an owl, you kind of think about, "Eh, that was weird. I saw an owl at my window. But like barn owls don't do that. That is a memory inserted into your brain to kind of cover up for the fact that, you know, it was actually an alien at your window. That's the general idea of a screen memory. So essentially how hypnotherapy works is the practitioner is lulling you into a state of extreme relaxation, which you kind of have to consciously submit to. It's not usually like the movies where someone can 
I'm doing the thing with my hands again, but it's a podcast, so you guys can't see it. <laughs> uh, the movies where someone can wave a pocket watch and make you cluck like a chicken. Specifically not in a therapeutic context like the one that was in play here. One thing that's really important when taking this story at face value is that the hypnotic state doesn't necessarily produce absolute truth. It will generally, I'm really going off on the adverbs today, oh my, I'm like Stephen King right now. It does generally produce what the subject believes to be the truth. So even if what is repeated is not necessarily exactly what happened, the small details can be checked and the subject generally truly believes that what he's saying is exactly what happened. And when it comes to the brain and the mind, what you 100% believe is what happened to you can absolutely have very real physiological effects. Just look at the placebo effect, the nocebo effect, all kinds of weird shit with the brain. And we'll get into other things on other episodes, but what I'm getting at is it's not, you know, the 100% arbiter of truth, but it is what the subject believes if they're actually in a suggestible trance state. So regardless of whether it happened, and personally, I'm inclined to believe that it did, given not only their account, but the physical evidence that I brought up at the beginning there, and we'll talk about a little bit more of it as we go on. But the Hills suffered very real physical and emotional trauma from their experience. Like I said, Barney is having ulcers. Uh, Betty is having nightmares. She's waking up in the middle of the night wondering why people are sticking needles in her. Um, stuff like that. With all that said, you are drifting off to the sound of my voice. On the count of three, you have the urge to share your favorite episode of Nightmare Now with one or perhaps even several of your friends. One, two, three. Sorry, I, I, uh, I dozed off for a second there. Anyway. Benjamin Simon, like I said earlier, he's a psychiatrist out of Boston comfortable with hypnotherapy, especially when it comes to treating amnesia or trauma-related amnesia. He's generally skeptical of UFO phenomena, but open-minded to the possibility that there could be something out there. And I think that's, I feel like the general population, I feel like that is the largest percentage of people. They're not sure what's out there. Some people believe in God, some people don't, some people have other religions, some people believe in aliens, some people believe that's totally far-fetched, but most people are willing to sort of look at the look at the information and kind of make an assessment from there rather than dismissing it outright. And I think that's pretty much where he's at. Also, what's interesting that I don't really see talked about on this particular subject is that Benjamin Simon served in World War II as an executive officer in the Army's primary psychiatric center in World War II, working on hypnosis and narcosynthesis. So narcosynthesis is, is using stuff like truth serum, like uh, sodium pentothal and stuff like that in the quote-unquote treatment of PTSD. And um, I don't know if it was called PTSD by the time World War II was going around or if it was still shell shock or whatever. But the fact that he is the leading person in the army on hypnosis and narcosynthesis 
from World War II to his treatment of the hills in 1963 or 4 is pretty fucking interesting. It makes me immediately suspicious of him being wrapped up in MK Ultra type stuff between World War II and Treating the Hills. I don't really have any other evidence to support that, but if you're going to find a guy that's going to be doing hypnosis and MK Ultra shit, Benjamin Simon would probably be that guy, which is interesting. Might be nothing, but I felt that it was worth pointing it out. So anyway, his goals for the hypnotherapy treatments were to open up the amnesia, treat their anxiety and sort of weirdness. Because like I talked about last week, they are, you know, spending a bunch of their free time going, driving up and down the freeway, trying to desperately remember what happened in those two and a half hours. And to him, the UFO stuff is secondary. You know, he thinks it might be aliens. It might be delusions. It might be, uh, what's it called? Foyer du. We'll talk to Sarah about that maybe a little bit later. But it doesn't really matter either way if it's aliens or not. He's a doctor. He's trying to help, quote unquote, fix them. His patient It doesn't matter if they're abducted by aliens or not. They're still suffering either way. So let's take the time to unpack it. And with the hypnosis, that is what they believe happened. So we need to unpack that. You don't, I don't think you challenge delusions. I think that's something I've heard my wife say before. So they take the time to unpack it one way or another. So let's get into the uh, descriptions of the sessions. Barney didn't It's kind of funny. Barney is a stubborn bastard. I talked about this last week where he's like, God damn it, woman, you better not Um, (laughs) ask me about UFOs one more time. And he's just like this defiant, obstinate bastard, which is something I love about him. And he, as he's getting inducted, so as they're doing the introductory sessions, getting him used to being hypnotized and stuff, he's like, you know, Doc, I didn't feel like opening my eyes or uncrossing my hands because that's one of the things that dr simon told him to do he's like you're gonna close your eyes you're going to cross your hands and this is actually something you hear from a lot of people that are subconsciously okay with being hypnotized willing to entertain the idea i guess is that they're all like they'll sit there and cross their hands and be like well you know i could uncross my hands if i wanted to and i could open my eyes but i felt like humor in the dark well, <laughs> I was going under. And you hear this all the time where it's just like, I just didn't feel like doing it. Which is kind of funny because I think that's exactly the effect that the hypnotism produces. It's the suggestibility. It's not forcing you to do anything, but you're like, you know what? We'll Let's see how this goes. I will keep my hands crossed. But luckily, both of them were exceptionally receptive to hypnotic induction. Something like... um Hang on, I had this. Please hold. Sorry, I didn't have this part in my notes. I had to look it up in the book, and luckily I dog-eared the page. But basically any child over the age of seven and any adult can be hypnotized. In fact, children are much more susceptible. I guess that doesn't matter. We don't need to talk about children. And it says here that very psychotic individuals and the mentally retarded are very resistant to hypnosis. Most of these cannot be hypnotized. That is some archaic language, but again, the book was published in 66. 
But generally, most people can be hypnotized, and 95% of the people that can be hypnotized can obtain the first stage, but only 20% of those people can reach the third stage where you fall into a real deep trance. And it has nothing to do with your will, it has nothing to do with you know, your willpower and how obstinate you are to hypnosis. It has to do with how open to the idea you are rather than some arbitrary willpower stat. It's not a fucking wisdom save or anything. Either way, both of them fell into that 20% that were able to fall deeply, deeply into the trance state. They'd forget everything that happened in session unless they were directed not to, which is interesting and another sort of tick on the believability meter because they couldn't talk to each other and coordinate their story between sessions. So after the first three weeks of Barney's induction, we hear his story in full and then Betty's and then Benjamin Simon brings the two together to listen to the tapes he recorded of both of their stories so they can listen to them together and kind of unpack it in a therapeutic environment. Now we finally get to go into the meat of what actually went on. For the sake of continuity, I'm just going to go through Barney's point of view and then Betty's point of view, ignoring when hypnosis sessions began and end, because they don't recall all of this in a single session. It's sort of peeled back like layers of an onion as they get further and further towards the truth of their experience. Whether that's their truth or the absolute objective truth, you know, make your own call on that. But because the sessions are so broken up, it really doesn't provide a concrete narrative to be like, okay, so in Barney's first session, he got to this point, and then we swap over to Betty, and then she got to this point. It's not really helpful to the narrative in any way, and that's kind of how the book is laid out, which is annoying, but I've kind of parsed it together so you don't have to. So we I will bring up where the sessions kind of begin or end, or you know, how far along in the hypnosis process it is, because like I said, it takes a few weeks where it's relevant. Like, for example, with the descriptions of the entities in Barney's first induction, he describes them as the weird Nazi figures or the Irishmen with the Chinese eyes or whatever. And as he kind of becomes more comfortable and is able to peel back deeper levels of his brain and those memories, that description evolves over time. As these screen memories are peeled away, he can kind of get towards the truth of the matter. And obviously the same thing is true of Betty. So I'll only bring that up where it matters in that sort of context. With that being said, some of the hypnosis itself is truly chilling. Hearing this grown-ass man sob and cry out in fear, saying shit like, He's pressing his eyes into my eyes. Please don't let them take me. Uh, like, just straight up outright sobbing uncontrollably in the session and you can hear this in the the tapes um i would include the audio but most of the actual sources of that audio have music over it which is infuriating whenever you try and rip audio out of like a documentary it always has this like bullshit 
ethereal music over it, which I'm sure I'd get a copyright strike on. So instead, I am going to put links to that stuff in the show note where I can find it. And keep in mind, this was 60 years ago, so they're not really winning any Grammys for audio production, you know? It's it's difficult to hear. You'd have to enhance it and everything, and it's just kind of beyond my audio capability right now. Another reason that the experience is broken up between the sessions is sometimes the patients, Betty and Barney, get so worked up about the experience that they're like, okay, uh, Dr. Simon is like, okay, you need to just relax. You need to calm down and we're going to take you out of this. Like when Betty has to deal with a gigantic needle, that needs to be split into two different sessions. So that's another kind of thing that limits what the recorded continuity is versus the actual events continuity is. So unless it comes up, and I'll try and mention it when it does, assume that the whole story takes place, the recollection of the story takes place over several billable sessions. So I think I talked about this last week, so I'll kind of go over it quickly, is the Barney seeing the craft from afar while he's driving. This is before the beeping. So when he gets out with the binoculars, he looks and he sees the window of the craft. And that's when he kind of makes that description of it looks like they were operating with Nazi precision and they're, you know, all in black uniforms and this and that and the other thing. And as they get closer, he looked like an Irishman. And Barney does not have a high opinion of the Irish, mostly because a lot of people of Irish descent in New England in the 1960s did not necessarily have the greatest um, perception of African Americans at the time. So that's a whole other thing we won't get into. But yeah, he, he didn't really get along with the Irish generally. And so he sees the weird Nazi Irish guys in the spaceship kind of following him and he's like okay i gotta get back to the car and then he's he's he starts screaming i talk about this last episode i remember talking about this part where he screams and runs back to the car and betty's about to get out of the car to figure out now bonnie what are you doing out there he gets back in and (laughs) he just does like the um i've actually been trying to find this sound effect so if anyone knows what it's called the like weird cartoony running Sound effect, the... I, I can't do it with my mouth. The um, It sounds like a weird timpani beat. I... Whatever. He, he does that and he runs back. And I'll, I'll try and figure that out and maybe, like, insert it here. And it'll be fun to, for you guys to watch me try and figure out what the fuck that is. But he runs back to the car to that noise. And, um... He's like, Dotto, Delcy, you gotta get out of here. <clears throat> um, does the whole Scooby-Doo, like, we need to get the fuck out of here. That's another episode I've got planned, is a lot of people have given me really great feedback on the real Scooby-Doo crime, so expect a part two of that at some point. But that's one of those fun ones that, you know, you could just do a couple of cases and just keep that series going. So, something to look forward to there. They get back into the car, and this is what I talked about last session when the craft appeared to be pursuing them. They didn't really breach any more new information during the, quote, chase during the hypnosis sessions because it was all before the beeping. And the beeping seems to be where the amnesia started. So skip ahead to that 
aforementioned beeping, where the memory fades out, right around Indian Head Resort in the middle of New Hampshire. It was sometime after this when they came to a roadblock of some time. Another thing I mentioned last week. But the fact that later on, Betty had a full-on panic attack over coming up to a completely normal roadblock. And believe me, there's a ton of those in New Hampshire and New England in general because we have, you know, snow season, mud season, mud season, summer rain, and the roads just take a fucking beating. But coming up to a completely normal roadblock, she has a full-blown panic attack. That's one of the things that gives the story a little bit more validity. But as a side note, in the end, a lot of the skepticism in the story, and I'll talk about that a little bit at the end maybe, hinges on whether you believe in hypnosis and whether it's legitimate for reclaiming amnesiac memories. Myself, I lean more towards legitimacy, but with the caveat that it's difficult but not impossible to lie to yourself. I'll ask Sarah about this at the end, but my understanding is that trauma can absolutely obscure, change, or conjure memories that aren't entirely accurate. So at the absolute worst case on the hypnosis angle, the Hills 100% believe that what came of the hypnosis is what happened to them. Another skeptical aspect of it is the suggestibility of hypnosis, which I'll grant, yes, there's an inherent suggestibility in the trance state, but we literally have the transcripts in this case. You can read the entire sessions, and there's even notes to where Dr. Simon makes efforts to clarify, to avoid suggesting or leading patients. For example, he encourages repetition to look out for inconsistencies in the story, or when he's asking them questions about stuff that is sort of beyond the normal pale of things going on. So these aliens, they did this or that. He only asks those questions based on information that the Hills have already given him, which is another thing that adds a little bit more validity to these hypnosis sessions in particular. He himself even says that he wasn't really at all interested in the idea of UFOs and was skeptical of the story altogether. He's open-minded, but really the UFO angle is not so much important as, you know, healing his patients is. And what is interesting is that they both gave an extremely consistent account between the two of them with all the details matching up before they themselves were consciously aware of this case narrative. So what I mean by that is, The story that Betty told and the story that Barney told, even though they weren't consciously remembering that, they could only remember that in trance, had like all these weird little details that were perfectly aligned. So it would take an extraordinary amount of coordination between the two of them to keep that going and keep that so deeply entrenched in themselves and lie to themselves about it to make it a lie in a trance state. And in the end, you come up with the the key bono, like who benefits? It's not like they made a ton of money off this. In fact, they were extremely nervous about bringing this to the public. For the first four years or so after their experience, they only told like three or four or five people um, about their experience. And they were desperately trying to figure out what had happened to them. It's not something that they wanted glorified. It's not something they made a lot of money off of. In fact, it may have ruined their lives, which is often the case when it comes to UFO stories. Not to mention a ton of hypnotherapy sessions in Boston and just the gas 
and time to keep driving up and down not only from Portsmouth to Boston for the sessions, but on the weekends they would drive up and down Route 3 and I-93 or whatever to try and find any clues to what had actually happened to them. And lastly about this, lastly on this tangent about hypnotic veracity, there really isn't, that really isn't the only factor this case hinges on. There's physical evidence. There's the dress, there's the snap binocular strap, there's Barney's shoes, there's the spots on the car that made the magnets go crazy there's barney's mysterious dick warts there's the stopped watches both of their watches after the event stopped working at the same time well you literally see that in the first x-files episode there the military admitted that there was stuff picked up on radar that wasn't them there's non-physical evidence which isn't as much as the physical evidence, obviously, but outside of the trans story, there's the panic attacks, there's the missing time, there's the fact that the case matches so many other cases that are reported in the future, whether it was aliens, a complete break from reality, a military abduction, or fairies, or who knows what. The fact is that something happened that night and it haunted the hills for the rest of their days. I appreciate a healthy bit of skepticism. I, I really, truly do. But dismissing things out of hand without looking at the whole picture and doing the research, especially on a case like this that is well-documented, well-sourced, all that isn't intellectually honest by any stretch. So people will be like, yeah, hypnosis, I don't believe in that. So the whole thing's fake. And it's like, okay, how do you explain these other 17 things? Anyway, back to the story. They come across a roadblock and Barney is just like, yep, better turn off right here. And they turn off the highway just into the woods, into the woods, barely even a road and go off the highway for a few minutes until they reach a clearing with a fucking huge glowing orange orb in this clearing in the woods. Barney just thinks, that's odd, and idles the car. And in their original memories, which I believe to be implanted screen memories at this point, these guys were all generic white, um, blue-collar workers with high-vis vests holding street signs. You know, your usual roadblock detour scenario. There, But as far as I could tell, and admittedly, I, I didn't, like, go into every town's physical records on street maintenance, there was no record of road or utility work on that day that I could find. <clears throat> As the sessions went on, the people controlling the detour became the weird Irish Chinese Nazis. And that the, what I mean by that is every time they talked about this, the screen memory kind of peeled away a little bit more, a little bit more and got closer to their truth, where, you know, the first time it's like, okay, it's the weird high-vis guys. Then it's like, okay, it's the same people that I saw in the craft. And then like, oh, why are they all bald? Why are they gray? And eventually ended with they're finally diminutive men with big black eyes, bald heads, and gray skin. Who could that possibly be? See my UFO primer on the grays. Again, there's notes and there's challenges showing that Dr. Simon did not push this angle. He may have even pushed back against it. He was saying stuff like, oh, I thought you said that they looked Irish. He's like, no, that was, they were obscured before or something. So the final image is that these greys are walking up to the vehicle while they're awake and aware, but also unafraid. Kind of this reality distortion mind control field where they make the hills, brains, rationalize everything as personal, as uh, perfectly normal. For the D&D &D nerds out there, it's kind of like, um, 
phantasmal force, the, like the spell description of that, where the the target will rationalize any incredible event as perfectly reasonable and come up with a reason. It's like, oh, you know, they're pulling me over for this, and it's just a normal inspection, and there's nothing wrong here. I Even in any normal scenario where you would be like, this is fucked up. So the aliens get to the car and they pull them out. Pull them out really isn't the right word. It sounds too aggressive. Barney at this point senses something is kind of off and wrong. Yeah, no shit. So the entities kind of grab him gently by the arms after he gets out and he kind of goes limp and his eyes close. And he goes into this sort of sleepwalking state. So that is some mind effect that they have. In the early sessions before he can remember and unlock this detail he remembers getting out of the car and just floating a sensation of floating around and eventually as the memory becomes clearer he talks about how it's pretty similar to the trance hypnosis state which is kind of interesting betty's description makes this a little bit clearer where the five foot tall quote-unquote men are still holding him but he's not responsive as she's being led inside in front of him inside of the craft At this point, Betty is kind of breaking the conditioning a little bit, and although she doesn't think it's completely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs that weird aliens are making her walk onto a spacecraft, she's pissed that Barney isn't responding to her because he's sleepwalking and nobody's telling her what's happening. And the aliens are just like, right this way, ma'am. She's like, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to my husband. Barney, are you hearing this? This is bullshit. And and then uh, the alien is just like, Ah, Barney is his name. Barney will be all right. We just want to run some tests. And then there's this, like, slapstick moment where Barney is, like, too heavy to float carry forward and, like, slaps the top of his feet against the ramp onto the craft and almost falls over with the two of them that are holding his arm. He's like, oh, watch the shoes, this, honey. And they eventually they get up the ramp and then the group of aliens, six in all, I think, at least that it brought them up, And, of course, it's a chromed interior, a big circular hallway. There's a map drawn up later during the sessions of what they remember from the craft. Basically, it's your run-of-the-mill flying saucer. It's hard to describe a ship layout without a visual, so I'll put those pictures in the notes. But, essentially, it is the ramp that comes up from the ground. And then the hallway splits at the ramp and circles the outer wall of the craft with eight seemingly equal-sized rooms. They're like pie Slices of pie rooms, but they only saw the interior of two of them. So at the front of the craft, the hallway opened into uh, the viewport that Barney had seen through the binoculars. The center between the rooms was kind of unknown. Perhaps it was a Bigfoot cage or an engine room or something. And this is where the two of them get separated. Barney still is in his sleeping state, which again, he'd later describe as very similar to the feeling of hypnosis which is kind of interesting. And Betty is still in her annoyed, but still compliant state. Where are you taking him? And then again, relax. It's just a few tests. So let's talk about what happened to Barney. Barney is brought into the examination room with a pale blue light. Not coming from anywhere. He's still in a trance, so the entities undress him and instruct him to lie down on an examination or operating table. So he does so, he obliges, and they begin running tests on him. His recollection seems a little bit hazier than Betty's because he's in that sleepwalking trance state. So for narrative clarity, some of the details 
of what happened to Barney come from what the entities told Betty about Barney's tests while she was undergoing an examination of her own. Hopefully that was clear. And like, this is fucked up while it's happening. And if you're close to the hills, but as an outside researcher, 60 years later, some of it is genuinely hilarious comedy. Like the teeth thing. I'll come back to that. So they kind of apply pins and needles all over his body on a handheld device connected to what appeared to be a screen, giving some kind of readout or feedback. And they basically had scotch tape, some kind of adhesive that they would have wrapped loosely around his arm. All the while, they had an extremely sharp razor blade-like object that sheared off the finest possible layer of skin flakes and cells that once they were sheared off and fell down, they were stuck to the wrapping, presumably for some kind of an analysis. And this is something that it's like shaving just the tiniest part of your skin off, so much so that it would, wouldn't would even like leave a mark a day later. Um, and this actually isn't in the book, but it's in the transcripts and other accounts, likely because of the more, somewhat more delicate sensibilities of the time keep in mind the interrupted journey was published in 66 but at one point barney was like yes i was told to flip over and a tube of some kind was indeed inserted into my anus about a few inches or so i understood this to have some sexual purpose and they're just like just run some tests sir and it, it's just the bit where it's like you get the prostate exam and then it's like the guy walks out, he's like, all right, the doctor's going to see you in a minute. It's like, wait, you're not the doctor? Immediately after he got his oil dipstick test that was performed there, uh, a cold cup was placed over his groin. This device would match the mysterious and painful concentric circles of bumps and warts around his dick and balls that would plague him for months and months after the encounter. Again, due to the sensibilities at the time, the suction cup isn't really described in great detail. But have you ever seen um, a cow milking machine? It was something pretty damn close to that, but with one big nozzle instead of four. And there was indeed a sample that was, <laughs> quote unquote, sample that was extracted using this device, likely for DNA purposes. And this isn't in the uh, so-called scholarly texts. Do you think they gave him, like, material? Like, do you think they had a penthouse with a gray on the cover or something? There's way too many cases of grays showing up with blonde wigs on in order to get DNA from um, losers on Earth that claim alien abductions for that not to exist. Maybe that'll be the show art is just, like, a big titty gray. <laughs> we'll think about it. Get over here, you little gray minx. Yeah, bring the pretty one over here to work the machine. <laughs> it's like the, uh, oh man, that's awful. Like the, uh, fuck, what's that guy's name? Peter Corey story where he, uh, he bites off the nipple of an alien that's trying to, like, seduce him. He gets his dick all tangled up in alien hair. It's great. It's great family-friendly story. Harrowing experience, as always, but it sounds a lot better than a lot of other alien abduction cases. We gotta do an episode on... Maybe that'll be the next alien abduction case I cover when I take a break and I'm less burnt out from talking about fucking aliens. Whew, goddamn, that's funny. But yeah, not... 
But when it comes down to it, not what you want. I don't think in his sleepwalking state that he could uh, properly give consent and all that. So, yeah, basically he was scientifically and sexually violated by aliens that extracted his cum while Betty was in the next room. That's the nicest way I can put it. And I got to reiterate that that is not good and and also not funny at all. What is funny, though, is his description of the aftermath in the session, in the hypnosis session. He's like, well, I got off the table and I was feeling extraordinarily happy. I feel relieved. I got a big grin on my face and a new spring in my step. And that was all they wanted from me. So I popped on my trousers and I closed my eyes and I was guided back down to the car. And he's surprised that the car is still running because he usually doesn't do that. He checks the back seat and Delcy is just balled up there and sleeping. She's likely in some kind of trance state herself. That's the dog again. He hops in the car. He looks he looks back at the craft to see Betty, who is also grinning in her afterglow of the session. And they get ready to watch the craft leave after she exchanges some words with the apparent captain of the ship. What was her experience like when they parted ways up until now? Was she hooked up to a reverse human milker? Hopefully not, but let's find out. So as for Betty's experience, once they got aboard the craft, before splitting up to their separate rooms, Betty talks to the taller one, who is presumably the leader. This is where the, we're just going to run a few tests and then you'll be on your way home in no time. She asks why they can't go in together to the examination room. He tells her there's not enough equipment and space in each room and it will take twice as long. It's a weirdly pragmatic answer, right? I don't think I've mentioned their outfits yet. They have, like, slightly futuristic Navy-style jackets, kind of like a military biker jacket, but a mm, slick, clean black rather than earth leather. The leader is a little bit more ornate. Maybe, like, he's got a shoulder pad with some tassels or something. It's not super accurately described. And that explanation is sufficient to Betty, so they... So they go into the room and it begins in another sort of comedic way where she's standing around doing the John Travolta, like looking around in Pulp Fiction meme until an alien uh, she calls the doctor or the examiner comes in. So it's so fucking funny that waiting in the exam room for a doctor is still that same weirdly stressful experience, not just on not just in America, but on Earth. But in the whole fucking galaxy, you have to have that awkward moment between the waiting room where it's like the doctor will see you now. And you go into the room and then the nurse comes in and like hits you on the knee with a hammer. And then you have to wait another 15 minutes being like, am I going to die? But that that translates to alien abductions as well. And there's something universal that we can take from that. And I'm not really sure what that is, but it's hilarious to me. So eventually the doctor does come in and of course it's another gray. He comes in and pulls her arms aside and he looks at it. He's poking the flesh and turning it over to look at the back. And then they do the skin, the, that same skin scraping procedure again. They seem confused by this, maybe because she's white and Barney's black. I'm not really sure. Then they do a similar thing where she's like in a dentist chair. They stick a cotton swab like thing to clean her ear out and put it more... Put it on more of that tape where a shorter guy wraps it up and takes it away. And this shorter guy keeps coming up. Keep an eye out. And then they similarly take nail clippings, a few hairs from her head, and the 
physician's assistant, short gray, takes all of those too. Next, he yoinks off her shoes and starts rubbing her feet, feeling up her toes, sticking his gray fingers in between them dogs, the whole nine yards. I didn't add that, all right? It's in the documents. The foot fetish gray eventually gets shooed away. Also, a kind of funny thing I learned about the whole nine yards is that the phrase supposedly i don't know if this is true or not but i saw it somewhere originates from world war one where the aircraft like machine gun belts were nine yards long so if you were given something the whole nine yards you were emptying the whole magazine into like a i don't know enemy ship or something which is kind of cool might not be true but who cares i have no obligation to tell you a hundred percent correct information do your own research so anyway after the foot fetish gray gets shooed away then they ask her to take off her dress and she's like oh oh yeah there's a zipper and almost before she can finish that sentence the little guy yoinks the zipper down and she's just nervously like oh oh thank you it's the same one of course that was like getting all up in her toes and she's asked to lie down on the table and both of them said that the tables were weirdly small like they were designed for these grays instead of people six feet rather than eight feet or whatever conventional medical table is and then they do that same device with all the little non-painful needles hooked up to the screen kind of tip tapping all over her body with that thing and then the doctor comes back with this big ass like six inch long syringe needle and she's like okay boys the Foot massage was nice, but I, I think I'd best be scooting. And they just ignore her an inch closer with this gigantic needle. And if you're scared of needles, maybe jump forward a minute. She's yelling and she's screaming. And she doesn't want them to do anything with it. Oh, it'll hurt. And they're just like, it's just a pregnancy test. And so she can't move. She's strapped down and he slowly inserts this giant needle into her navel. She's screaming, it hurts, it hurts, make it stop. And later in sessions, she said it felt like a hot knife going into her, like she was being stabbed. <laughs> also later on, she's like, that's not how we do pregnancy tests on Earth. While she's still screaming, though, the leader comes up from the door and tells her it doesn't hurt and slowly waves his hand over her eyes like he's Qui-Gon Jinn doing a Jedi mind trick. And what do you know? She becomes numb and she becomes complacent and it doesn't hurt. The only pain she experiences is a slight soreness at the insertion point of the needle. Other than that, the pain is completely gone. So after they remove the needle and get whatever they needed for their disgusting, nefarious purposes, the testing seems to be done and this is the super weird part. The leader kind of dismisses the other doctor and assistant and says, Barney isn't ready yet. Meanwhile, cut to Barney just having the most earth-shattering orgasm of his life, thrashing about and kicking over equipment in the next room. <laughs> oh my god, that's probably why they had this time to talk, because Barney was causing a scene and they had to clean up before they go. They have to pressure wash all the fucking walls and stuff. That's canon now. I'm, <laughs> I'm adding that to the UFO canon. So because Barney, quote-unquote, isn't ready, they have a little time to chat in her head in English. 
they either had the ability to do telepathy or some sort of weird translator babblefish technology because physically the only sound they would make was this like mumbling and humming they would make with their thin, almost non-existent lips. And Betty is just like, this is the most amazing experience. I, I can't believe this is happening. I just need to have some proof. Can I take this? Can I take some proof? And she um, she takes a book with alien writing off the shelf, and he's like, yes, sure. And uh, he lets her keep it for the time being. And that's when the funniest part of this whole thing happens, when uh, the examiner that was looking at Barney bursts into the room and uh, she can't really understand what he's saying to the others, but it seems like it's something to the effect of, we gotta check its teeth, because he's holding Barney's dentures. So they do. They uh, A doctor comes in and starts, like, starts tugging on Betty's teeth, wondering why they don't come out. <laughs> so they tug on him gently, and they're like, how come his come out and yours don't? And that's when she remembers that Barney has dentures that come out, and she doesn't. And this has them just completely gooped and flabbergasted. They have no idea what she's talking about or why someone would do that. So she spends some time talking about how old age works. And they're like, age, what is that? And she's like, you know, when someone lives a long time, they're like, time, tell me about time. And she's like, you know, 65 years or 65 to 80 years. It's the time around uh, Earth going around the sun, and that's about how long humans live. And he's like, oh, that's so interesting. Tell us about vegetables. <laughs> and the leader just keeps asking her the dumbest questions you could ever imagine an alien asking an Earthling. Where it's like, so vegetables, huh? You got any, uh, you have a favorite? And she's like, well, I kind of like squash. And she's like, tell me about squash. She's like, it's a gourd. What's a gourd? And she's like, well, it's kind of like a vegetable. And she's like, what's a vegetable? And she's just like, For, you know what? Forget it. Just go to Whole Foods, hit the salad bar. They'll tell you everything you need to know. And But he's just asking her all these questions. And it's kind of weird because later on, he tells her to wait a minute, even though it seems like he doesn't understand time. So I don't know if he's just humoring her and buying up time or if he's genuinely curious about all of it. Probably a little bit of both. But they can't really quite grasp the concepts. She's like, yeah, and then the it's this yellow thing and they're like what's yellow and she's trying to point to something on her dress that's yellow and there's no yellow and so she can't explain a color to somebody but meanwhile while they're having this completely mean meaningless conversation in the next room barney is just in the next room just like <laughs> the milker is going completely off the rails and the short gray is just like running around the room trying to catch all of it in the bucket complete chaos anyways disgusting um that's when something really interesting happens with betty and the leader and they take a look at like a star wars style hologram projector map i'll throw that in the show notes as well he explains that this is their home area of the galaxy these are trade routes these are expeditions these are our colonies etc etc they study it together and then they talk about more they talk more about earth and she's like well you know we as earth on this map and he's like 
Well, if you don't know where Earth is, then what difference does it make where anything on this map is? And uh, she's like, you know, that's a good point. I'd still like to know, though. And she asks them if they'll come back. And the leader is kind of like, I'm not sure. And, you know, I might get reassigned if I come back. I'll hit you up. This map that they're talking about will be an important aspect later. So she's really pleased. And she tells him that she's, there's no way... She'll forget any of this, no matter what. And he kind of laughs that off. And then the doc comes in and puts his hand to uh, his ear hole. I don't think they actually have ears. I think they just have ear holes. And uh, mutters something to the leader. And he kind and the leader kind of looks back at the doctor and frowns. Not really with his mouth, but with his eyes. You know how you have the smize where you can smile with your eyes? It's like a smown. Um... And he's just like, my apologies, Betty, you can't keep the book, I'm sorry. I know it's supposed to be your proof, but it's it's over my head. And I'm paraphrasing there, but that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it stands to reason that there's some larger organization calling the shots, but it's neat that he explicitly mentions that there's somebody above them in charge of everything. Naturally, she's pissed about that because she still wanted to keep the book. And it was this cool, like, book with hologram pages and this uh, electric blue digital pages with uh, text going downwards, like Japanese lettering or (laughs) the Matrix screensaver. Um, So she's pissed, but she's still determined to remember. She's like, no matter what you do, I am going to remember this for the rest of my days. And you can't take that away from me. And through her hard work, through her perseverance, and through her hypnotherapy, she did. She fall- She made good on that promise. But now Barney is cleaned up. He's, like, covered in sweat. He's got his tie wrapped around his head. He's allowed to sleepwalk out of there. So they walk down together. He's a little bit ahead of her. So he reaches the car first, like I said. And the last thing the leader said to Betty is that... um it wouldn't be a problem for them to watch them leave if they wanted to. And so Betty and Barney stand in front of the car as the whole saucer-looking thing starts to sort of power up and almost morph into this big orange glowing ball. And that's another thing you see pretty frequently in Close Encounters is that the crafts will oftentimes turn into just spheres of light and zoom off. And that's exactly what it does. It whips off soundlessly into the distance of the night. And an interesting thing to take into account here is in the original recollection of their story, before they even had hypnosis, they had this like weird kind of dreamlike memory of a moon in the road. And of course, they're right in front of their car and they see this big orange sphere in front of their car. That's probably what they were remembering. It's it's weird that the screen memories couldn't quite cover that up, but it could mask it as generic New Hampshire roadblock. It's really interesting. So after that, they get back into their car, they drive off, and once they're safely back on the highway, the beeping starts up again. And this is when they both kind of jolt back to focus with their memories wiped, driving down and seeing that exit conquered 17 miles, the end of their missing time. And it's so funny. Right as the beeping starts up again, Betty's like, so do you believe in flying saucers now? And Barney's just like, God damn it, Betty, I told you, (laughs) told you not to listen to any of that fantasy. And yeah, that's pretty much the extent of their actual encounter aboard the craft. That's the narrative of their two and a half hours of missing time, as far as they can tell. There might be more, there might be less, 
there might, who knows but that's the information we have that's what we have to talk about i'm gonna put in some i'm gonna have sarah come in here and talk about a couple of therapy and mental health things real quick so i'm just gonna cut that here okay we're live we're not live because we're recording this in advance but how are you today love i'm doing well how are you welcome to the studio it's uh standing room only you didn't answer my question how are you i'm great i'm living the dream (laughs) i'm here with you and that's all i need so i had a couple of quick questions for you about the sort of weird squishy aspects of the brain when it comes to this case and i've kind of explained some of the stuff to you and we've watched the documentaries together barney was in treatment for his anxiety and stuff before all this took place so he was already seeing a therapist what 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 does that look like in like the late 50s early 60s well it was groundbreaking to begin with that uh you know adult black man was in therapy in the first place i feel like that was i mean it's still there's so much stigma around it for everyone but especially people in barney's position so first of all go to therapy everyone um <laughs> good plug yeah then uh what did it look like I can't say exactly. Is this probably like old guy sitting in a chair? Old guy sitting in a chair. Think like the the therapist in Sopranos, you know how she would just look at at Tony until he would say something and just not, she wouldn't say anything. She would just be kind of a blank slate. A little bit of nodding. A little bit of that's interesting. Not even that. Just like they would start the session. They would sit down and then the therapist just stares at you until you say something. (laughs) It sounds awful. I could never. But... Probably something like that. Probably I'm picturing like old guy with like a mustache. I'm basically like picturing Freud, but maybe not um, exactly Freud, but Freudish looking type of guy. And no doubt. Yep. In a chair, um, Barney or Klein or whoever sitting on a couch or no, no, laying down on a couch. And yeah, you got to be yeah lying down. All right. So not anything like we've got today. No. One of the things I talk about a little bit earlier in the episode is the fact that trauma can make you either forget or create false memories or change memories. How does, how does, how do, how would do that? (laughs) Um, Trauma is like a hell of a drug and it really hits everyone a little bit differently. Um, But generally speaking, everyone kind of has like a, a window of tolerance, so to speak, for traumatic experiences. And so um, based on like how much you can handle and how much like resiliency you have, which is kind of dependent on a bunch of different factors. Um, you're going to get affected by the trauma in different ways. So, and it's going to stick with you in in different ways. So, if you have like a really really have like the severe traumatic experience and you um like pretty much dissociate, like you you leave your body because your brain is just like nope, too painful, can't handle this, we're out of here. Consciousness out. And you might not consciously remember something that happens to you. What? I, I don't want to high five. I'm just trying to be oh. respectful and raise <laughs> raise my hand to take a question. So in, in that dissociation period, is that kind of when it's just like, well, we have to put something here in the brain timeline or? No, it just kind of like goes away. Okay. Um, You dissociate and dissociation happens on like different levels too. Like you might dissociate in the sense that like, you know, you're there, but like you might not be able to 
um, recall like certain sensory components of the memory. Like you might not remember what somebody looks like, but you remember what they smell like. Or you might, you know, remember that there was like a certain song playing when something happened, but you don't remember like other little details. Or you only remember the little details and you don't remember like the main event of what happened. Cool. Very interesting. Then that kind of ties into the other stuff I wanted to ask you about, but we talked about the hypnosis stuff a little bit on our own Mm -hmm. over the last two months or whatever, however long I've been taking on this episode. And it's interesting that you bring up the fact that you can sometimes only remember the small details or only remember the big details. Mm -hmm. What do you think of, do you have, do you have like any kind of opinion on hypnotherapy right now or is not something you know too much about? Certainly no professional opinion as a person. I think it's really interesting and cool. And there are some um, therapeutic modalities that are kind of hypnosis-y that uh, kind of have elements of of what feels like hypnosis and like um, are meant to treat trauma like EMDR and like somatic processing therapy and stuff like that where you do all kinds of like weird tapping and it supposedly helps you like heal from your trauma but um hypnosis therapy in particular i don't really know anything about but i think it's cool yeah the the other ones you mentioned there like the emdr that's the eye movement Mm -hmm. thing right so that kind of i don't know that much about this stuff but that kind of feels like a similar thing you're doing repeated you know, motions to kind of get into some sort Mm -hmm. of altered state to... Well, not maybe not altered state, but more like unlock certain like parts of your brain that Mm -hmm. you're not unlocking on a regular basis, I guess. Would you say that you don't have conscious access to? So it's like subconscious stuff that you are accessing? Yes and no. It's kind of like the the stuff that your brain knows, but you don't know that you know, if that's what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, And then one other thing that they were talking about that might be a uh, quote unquote debunking of the entire story is this phenomena called, uh, it's French, so I don't know how to say it. Mm -hmm. We don't like to speak French. No, we don't. We're very uh, triggered like the, by French accents. The foyer adieu mm-hmm. or whatever. The yeah. the folly of madness of madness for two. Make it a double. Yeah. <laughs> it's us right now. It's us right now. Um it's us at all times. Do you do you know anything about that? I maybe later on if uh we can do a whole episode on that. We'll time it with the uh mm-hmm. Joker to the Lady Gaga movie coming out. Because right. I think that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. That would be some good press. But do you have any like knowledge on that or I don't know about it or any like specific cases. I only kind of know what it means. It's basically when instead of just one person has a, a certain delusion or a certain mm-hmm. like psychotic belief or they're like they have some kind of psychosis and they believe whatever. Um, it's two people that share the same belief or, or the same delusion or that have the same kind of psychotic features. Right. OK. And my understanding is that it's somehow transmitted between them in some way i don't know it, it it's, might just it's be like rare yeah and again i really don't know that much about it yeah. but i feel like it could be as simple as like one person saying oh i believe that um the sky is actually made of cotton candy and uh, another person is like oh i totally believe that too yeah <laughs> i mean that's that's basically a transfer of ideas in and of itself so maybe look out for that in the future we'll we'll do some fun squishy brain research do you and your bestie have like a 
really specific delusion, then maybe you've got this. Maybe you've got this. Um, you, so the, that's pretty much the only things I want to do ask you about here. Did you have anything you wanted to add about the Betty and Barney Hill stuff based on anything we've talked about the last few weeks? Or Oh, gosh, you're really putting me on the spot. Um, you don't have to have anything. No, I have something. I just, I don't know what I have. You like the dog. I love the dog. That's, Very cute. That's really, really, I was trying to figure out a clever, like, cute way to say, love that, love that breed of dog. Sweet little Delcy. Yep. The dachshund. The dog. Nice alliteration. Justice for Delcy. That's what I'd like to leave with. Right. Nothing Nothing happened to her. Nah, I, well, justice for <laughs> her anyway. Regardless. Regardless, she deserved better. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I thank you. you for having me. I love you too. Bye. But after that quick discussion with my lovely wife, um, let's talk about the aftermath. What, what happened? Where are they now? They're both dead, unfortunately. It was 60 years ago, so whatever in the sessions barney was able to draw the figures and betty was able to draw the star map barney was also able to draw the map of the craft itself which i talked about earlier all three of those pictures i guess will be in the note the map though is really fascinating because she's able to draw it out and keep it she's reading the new york times a full year later after she's done with sessions the article talks about a cluster of stars that a new telescope had just discovered that matched her star map almost exactly. So yet another weird bit of supporting evidence, and it is the area of the galaxy now known as Zeta Reticuli. To be fair, you can kind of just dip a paintbrush in paint and flick it at a piece of canvas or whatever, and you're going to get a fleck pattern that matches some stars in the galaxy. And it'll, it'll match something. This is another one of those examples of a debunking that really pisses me off, where the map has been debunked because the stellar distances don't exactly line up with modern calculations of technology 60 years later. Which, sure, it doesn't math out, but that's like saying that you drew a map of your country. Like, if you, I drew a map of the United States by hand, while in a hypnosis state. And if any of the distances are off, there's a north-south and uh souther Dakota or something. That's a completely fake map. And that none of that ever happened. And the United States didn't exist because I didn't get all the proportions right. And it's doubly so because we're talking trillions and trillions of miles away. Like, I, I really don't understand how that, in good faith, is a debunking of the star map in general and i'll include where it matches up to the new york times thing and everything but people will find a minor detail in something and then be like okay this doesn't quite match up so the whole thing must be fake and that is just i mean think of anything in your life and think of you know that detail doesn't quite make sense does the rest of it does that make the rest of it not real not true no of course it doesn't I guess technically debunked, but not in good faith and not in any sort of meaningful way when taken in the full context of the entire story. Another thing I want to talk about real quick is Betty's dreams. So after the abductions, but even slightly before the hypnosis sessions, Betty was having these weird nightmares and they were out of place, but all of them were recounted in hypnosis sessions in the correct order so betty had put up 
almost this psychic resistance to either the screen memories or the mental block placed in there by the aliens so that she could remember. And the only way she was remembering was through these dreams. And you might be thinking like, okay, she had these weird dreams and they came out in hypnosis because she wanted to believe them. But at the same time, Barney had the same experiences in his hypnosis sessions and he hadn't heard the dreams. In fact, when Betty told Barney that she was having nightmares, he was like, Betty, I don't want to hear no more of this UFO nonsense. And um, basically anytime she would try and tell him about these UFO dreams she was having, he'd be like, shut the fuck up. I do not want to talk about this. It makes me ill. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Do not talk about this. So people are saying like, oh, yeah, you know, he was just influenced by her dreams. But it's simply not the case. So that's another tick on the believe-a-meter for me is her dreams match up to exactly what was said in hypnosis by a second party. That's not the most compelling piece of evidence on its own. Obviously, it's a dream. Who gives a shit? But when taken in the greater context of all the other stuff that we talked about the last couple of weeks, you know, it's a it's a little tick towards believability. So after the events, after they were kind of cured and after cured, quote unquote, you know, they were able to process their experience. They They did feel a lot better mentally after being able to get it all out and sort of have some understanding of what happened to them. A few years later, the interrupted journey was written and published and that gave them a little bit of fame, but not so much as they have now in the big era of paranormal podcasts and news and UFO disclosure and all that shit. But they they lived out the rest of their lives married to each other. Um, Sadly, Barney died just a few years later in 1969. He was only 46 years old due to a cerebral hemorrhage, which I don't really want to read into this too much because there's not really that much evidence to support anything. But it's really messed up that somebody that has a landmark UFO experience dies of a brain hemorrhage five years later or eight years later whatever it is at the age of just 46 years old it it just is weird you know and obviously cerebral hemorrhages do not necessarily discriminate in what they affect or who they affect rather but it's i don't know it's worth mentioning it certainly and maybe this whole ufo experience had something to do with it Betty lived until the age of 85, and she died in in 2004 of lung cancer, and she still lived right here in Portsmouth. Uh, Lung cancer, she died of because she was a chain smoker. And there's a, I'll see if I can rip out the picture, because there's a, um, they did a photo shoot of her, and she just looks completely over it. She just looks like the most haggard woman you have ever seen. But not before she spent the rest of her days, you know, giving talks at UFO conferences, uh, explaining her experience. Their st- both of their stories never wavered until the day they died. She spends a lot of time looking into the phenomena and always keeping an eye on the sky and changed the course of her life forever. And just that alone, even if nothing happened, there was a very real effect on very real people. And it echoes in history even to this day. So something happened, whether you are skeptical or not. Something happened with this couple. 
Then there's one more take that I really want to get into because I, I found out about it last minute. I actually had to delay the show to kind of do the extra research on this. And I was also trying to get the audio, but I just could not find a clean audio of any of the hypnosis stuff. But famous loser, pervert, and occultist Aleister Crowley might be involved in this. And if you spend enough time looking into paranormal stuff or alien stuff or occult stuff in any capacity, you're going to run into Aleister Crowley's disgusting fingers poking into every story. And that's a story for another time, but I'm assuming most people interested in paranormal and weird history podcasts have at least heard of him in some capacity. He's got his grubby shit-covered fingers and everything paranormal. And I think I've, uh, it's come up on episodes before where he's just like, you know, randomly been on the periphery of some topic. Maybe it was the ancient Egypt one where I was talking about the, the mummy's curse and the fact that he had spent a night in the pyramids getting reamed out or something. Eventually, I'll have to do some sort of biography show on him, unfortunately. But as it relates to this particular story... Old Crowley lived in New Hampshire for a summer in 1916 to 1917. He stayed in the house of an astrologer frenemy of his, Evangeline Adams. They squabbled about books. They were both morons. Eventually, their relationship turned sour. So they, they, they kind of helped ghostwrite each other's books a little bit. And she was an astrologer. So she was pioneering all this stuff about astrology. And it's funny, in Aleister Crowley's book, he says he spent the summer on the Lake Pasquini in New Hampshire, which is not a real lake. It does not exist. But the historical record places him at the actual lake in the town of Hebron, New Hampshire, which is real. And it was here that Crowley baptized a toad as Jesus and crucified it on a cross. Just disgusting stuff. And it was also here, maybe it wasn't the specific frog uh, toad ritual that he was doing, that the entity Lamb came to Mr. Crowley. Those of you well-versed in occultism may kind of pick up where this is going. A few short years later, he published the image of the otherworldly entity Lamb, an image that bore a striking resemblance to who else but the Greys. This purported first contact took place in New Hampshire within an hour of the Indian Head Resort where the beeping and the abduction took place. Like the entire high strangeness area of the Betty and Barney Hill case is within an hour of where Aleister Crowley summoned a gray alien type entity into the world is that a coincidence i don't know i don't i don't fully believe in coincidences honestly but that's up for you guys to decide it's just another weird crowleyan coincidence among many another one is that crowley died in 1947 the same year that another one of the gray's greatest hits took place a little ditty us in the biz like to call the roswell incident you ever heard of it? We'll get to it eventually. I'm so sick of aliens right now, though. But here we are. What a wild ride. Thank you, everyone, for tagging along. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thank everyone for your patience. That about wraps it up, folks. 
I started something new this week where I'm posting like a silly picture on the Nightmare Now Instagram every day and people seem to like it. So check that out. It might be worth a giggle. I'm on there far too much already. So if you got a topic you want to get a Nightmare Now episode on, feel free to hit me up on my DMs or comments with those ideas. Thanks again for listening. You guys rock. Always feels so great to be recording. I wish I had more time to do it, and maybe eventually I can make this a full-time thing. But for now, I'd say sweet dreams, but we all know it's only gonna be nightmares now.